I always have this very bold statement of, I truly believe that Seta will enable the next generation of Web3 applications. Because essentially we are opening up the entirety of the internet crypto applications. So you can go absolutely wild with the ideas of what you want to build to answer, yeah, wild ideas. That was Jasper, CTO at Seta Protocol. And on this podcast, he joins me with his co-founder, Peter. Names aren't familiar? That's because Seda was formerly known as Flux Protocol. And on the former product, there were first-party protocol providers on Near and Aurora. But fast forward to today, Seda has evolved into its own full-fledged base layer protocol for interconnectivity. I know that I say this for most episodes, but I truly loved this one. We start by taking it easy, and defining some base, some basic concepts such as blockchains, oracles, and bridges with tons of analogies to make it super easy for non-technical people to keep up. As we go on, we start to unpack some of the current challenges and limitations that existing oracles have and other factors that lead into today's SEDA. About 35 minutes in, things start getting a little bit out of control. There's a little bit of alpha combined with insights and just excitement about what some of these features could mean for developers and mass adoption. As with every episode, all the information contained here is for education and entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial or any other type of advice. You should always do your own independent research. With that very important disclaimer, I'll let you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Peter and Jasper. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, it's a throuple. I'm excited to have with me like Peter and Jasper, co-founders at Setup Protocol. Welcome, friends. Thank you for having us. Um, yeah, I'm Peter. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Setup. Jasper. CTO, co-founder as well, etc. This has been a long time in the making. I always like to start with some uh, analogy of like a like an old friendship, if we have any history. And also to remember, there's been many calls that Peter and I have shared in where he just shares his wisdom and his technical prowess. But I'm trying to remember, Jasper, I was at a co-working space in Miami. And I met with someone from Seda. There was definitely Stefan, but I think you were there as well. I have never been into Miami, so it couldn't be me. It, it, it was all online. I was in a shitty co-working, but uh, you guys ah, were here. Ah, got it, got it, got it. It could be, it could be. We've definitely talked before, but I don't remember what the location was except for the first Nearcon or the second Nearcon or both. I, I don't remember exactly, but we've definitely met at the Nearcons. And then we've also definitely chatted over a video call, but I don't remember the context at the time. I guess it's for me because I travel so much. I timestamp things by the location that I was in. I think, I think also we first met, like, I remember it was always like nighttime, my time. So also probably like middle of the night for you local. And then I just remember, yeah, we were on different near governance calls talking about the ecosystem and, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Back in. I think that's pre-bull market, like 2020, early days. Very cool. We'd love to hear about Nearcon this year. Unfortunately, it was right during our team offsite. So we were also in Portugal with the whole team. Unfortunately, we couldn't make it. We were able to catch up with Ilya for dinner, say hello. We'd love to hear as well how that was going. So I missed the first one because I was in lockdown. Lovely times. And the second one for me was amazing. 
I think there's something about getting old and maybe it just matches like bull and burr cycles. I haven't really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed like the second go of a conference that I really enjoyed the first time. Like I had some experience with East Denver. Like the first one for me last year was hallucinating. Like the entire street packed with people, all the venues side by side. I almost freeze to death trying to break into a concert with like Dead Mao or some shit oh, like you that. Were, you were at that too? I was also there, yeah. <laughs> yes. So this shady motherfucker uh, convinced me we could jump the fence. Narrator voice, he jumped the fence and got in. I almost freeze to death waiting. And But anyway, so this year, bear market vibes. And there were three separate venues. So even though there may have technically been the same amount or, or more people, the three venues made it seem a little bit more quiet. And it was the first time this year as well that I hacked. So I was pretty much just in Hacker HQ. I've been keeping up, catching up with the talks on YouTube. So yeah, it was good. I just realized that the Hacker experience is completely different from the, the regular attendee. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you missed out. We missed you. Yeah, next year, hopefully we can make it again. I think the last NearCon, we were catching up on our first party Oracle product. That's what we were building in the market in time. And we launched that in March. We built it for two months, like an internal hackathon. because We saw their extraction and lead on Aurora uh, at the time. And, and, and I think that was probably the last thing we caught up is when we were building that first party Oracle product and getting that live and mutating it, it tried to scale it across other networks, which is exactly what led us to building Sega now is that experience. But it's definitely a lot has changed since the last near con for sure. Yes. So I listened to see this, this may be getting weird. Maybe I'm the only one that does this. So I remember crystal clear. I was on a bus in New Zealand and I listened to the podcast you had with Ready Layer One. This would have been yeah, somewhere between March and June this year. Yes. Yeah. That was a really good podcast. That was like, this is not financial advice, but damn, like, I may want to look into buying. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Thank you. Yeah, I totally forgot about that podcast, actually. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that one. Oh, they're great. I, I love the duo between technical and like product and marketing focused. So maybe for the listeners, assuming that they don't know anything about SEDA, how would you describe it? It will be like your elevator pitch and we can start to just unpack it from there. The, the basic elevator pitch is SEDA is the foundation for real world data in Web3. So we've essentially over the past 18 months designed a uh, layer one network that allows any protocol on any network to communicate with real world data or the data from another blockchain. So that's the highest level, like 20, 20 word intro of what SEDA is. A little bit more background before we dive into the technicals of SEDA. So we've raised a little bit over 22 million. So we got started with SEDA back in 2021. So Jasper and I, and those that don't know us yet, we built all over the crypto stack. So we started at the top of the user stack, or I guess Jasper actually at the other end with Plasma back in 2017. But I started at the top of the stack before we met each other. I built one of the first uh, decentralized app stores called everydap.com. And when Jasper and I met and started building the first app for derivatives on startups, and we basically saw this hole in the market where there's a lot of cool infrastructure in 2018. But there's not a lot of cool applications being built with infrastructure. So we tried to hack together this prototype using Augur as our third-party Oracle. And then we built this trading infrastructure on top. And when we launched it, we realized that the gas fees were like $10 to $15 at that time in 2018. So we knew for an average user who wants to spend $100 on a transaction, it'll just price them out. And so that's how we ended up looking at other L1s. So we ended up looking at a ton of different layer ones. At the time, it was super contrarian because Ethereum was the layer one. There wasn't really a 
a second, right? And at the time, we ended up finding our way to Nier. So we were one of the first teams building on Nier back in 2019 before the mainnet launch. And in, in there, we really cut our teeth in infrastructure. So we went down the stack. We started building infrastructure for getting data on chain and for market uh, mechanics as well. And then that's what brought us on our journey to building now this layer one for data. So that's just a quick primer. We're going to dive into much more of those details through the podcast. And Jasper, if you want to give maybe a more technical view of what SATA is, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll start with a really brief introductions and then I'll jump in wherever we need technical clarification on what we're building. I started working in crypto in late 2017. I was back then, it was transitioning from the ICO, ICO hype to what I call the blockchain, not crypto era, which was the era of permissioned corporate chains. And I don't know if you've ever heard of like the IBM derivative chains that, that came out at the time. It was quite a nightmare. Hyperledger. Hyperspace. And... Exactly, exactly. And I was, my day job was consultancy. So I, I set up a blockchain team at, a, at a, I'm, I'm Dutch and I was uh, working at a Dutch weapon app development company and I was doing consultancy specifically on uh, blockchain technology for them. So I set up a small team and I was basically trying to like red bill corporates on, hey, tried public ledgers. So one of the fun things I did is I tokenized beer for Heineken as a prototype. So you could send each other beer in the form of ERC20 tokens, which was a fun experiment. Obviously never saw the light of day, the light of day, but it was a cool experiment. Then when I got sick of having to build these MVPs and not anything ever seeing the light of day. I started reaching out to people in the Ethereum community and eventually rolled into some freelance jobs, which led me to a research team where we were, where we raised a bunch of money from the Ethereum foundation to work on Plasma, which was back then the main option for Ethereum L2 scalability, but it ended up dying out and being replaced with rollups due to technical constraints, which are slowly being alleviated now, which is why Vitalik a few weeks back actually posted the blog post on we should bring like bring back Plasma, which was for me like a mix of PTSD and excitement that, that came up after that, after that message. And well, one of my products was being demoed at East Berlin in 2018, Peter and I met. So that's, that's the, like my grunt. That's awesome. I can probably assess the value and the quality of a meme when I don't actually know what it is saying, but I get it. Like the memes about Plasma coming back and Vitalik, the classic one about the man is in the middle, there's a woman next to him looking back and there's like a hotter one walking by. I think I saw one of those with Plasma being the new hot one yeah. <laughs> and the yep, roll-ups being like... For sure. Yeah. Uh, I think a little yeah, bit of what's going on there is that the mindshare of roll-ups is starting to be captured by non-Ethereum chains. Like Celestia has quite a bit of mindshare as a data availability layer that would kill that narrative for Ethereum. So I think that's one of the reasons why we see Plasma being brought up again, because Plasma moves actually all of the computation to off-chain. So all of the computation happens off-chain, but in a verifiable manner. It's really cool. It's actually a, a very dope technology, but it just requires a lot of cryptographical advances, which we've seen over the last few years. So that's why people are trying to this is getting deeper, faster than I expected, but yeah. there's three layers to me that are super interesting. One would be like Plasma, like old, now coming back. The second will be rollups. Well, the third category for me that I've been super fascinated, learning a lot, especially after Neocon, has been ZK. Can you expand a little bit on what you meant about rollups being captured by Celestia? 
because I, I know that you're probably looking at it from the like the technical angle, but I'm always interested from like the business game theory angle. Like where is the value going and what happens if this so, trend continues? Yeah. So the reason why Celestia would capture rollup mindshare is because Ethereum is not built for data availability. It, it is a great base layer for data availability, but it's not built for it. Where Celestia as a app chain has been built just for data availability, right? Like storing rollup states and performing like essentially like the, the sort of like security, yeah, enforcing the security constraints that you would expect from a rollup system. So I, I think that is, that's interesting. And use on near making a move towards DA as well with Eigenlayer. And yeah, it, it's a very hot topic. Because I saw a tweet that said like unpopular opinion or like hot take every data availability layer is eventually going to move up the stack and become an execution layer as well. Yeah. That's what because I was thinking about. The, How does it? I'll go further. I'll go way further than that. All of these layers are going to capture very minimal value. They all have to go up the stack and then up the stack again, and then up the stack again, because in the end, it's going to be consumer applications that are going to capture a very large percentage of the, of the revenue that is now being made by L1s, L2s, DA layers. I think they're going to be left, they're going to make money because they need to run, but it's got, their margins are going to be pretty thin by the end of it. Yeah, that was, that realization came crashing down on me, or I guess somebody smashed it over my head at Nate's house. Just before Neocon, we had a very exclusive uh, barbecue, which included a very elite gathering to discuss tokenomics. And uh, the way that Kendall dumped it down for me was ZK changes everything. Like the, the value of security, one server now is the same as a hundred million of, of least security. So there's thinking through a lot of the initial assumptions, but I guess that the exciting message is that it should push the crypto market towards value creation in that application layer. Because for a long time, and I remember me attending a NEO, NEO, crazy, pretty old, a NEO event in San Francisco. And I was like, what the fuck? There's more investors than builders here. And I thought, ah, maybe because it's San Francisco, there's just a lot of money. But everywhere around the world that you go to a crypto event, it's more investors, quote unquote. But these are not like real investors. It's just people speculating with like very small, tiny bags. So yeah, the app layer thesis or creating value at the, at the consumer application layer is, is pretty hot. Do you find that to be like a popular take or are you guys trailblazing on it's, that end? I, I think it's a fact amongst people that have like, if you understand what is valuable within crypto, the, the value is in block space and block space is valueless without supply of transactions. So the entry point of transactions, whether it's a wallet or it's an application, anybody that has the ability to withhold transactions or choose where transaction goes, owns the supply of transactions to block space. And these people have eventually, if you own the transaction supply chain, you own the, you have like the largest supply, which means that blockchain demand is going to pay you a lot. It's not the best way of phrasing it, but I think. I think in, yeah, but from like a top off perspective, I think that's the way. We're going to come back to say that in just one minute. I just think that the Celestia theorem example is a really fascinating one because I guess a, a lot of people would be familiar with it. I mean, make it was like a conceptual framework. So if we were to apply that to that relationship, I'll use a terrible analogy and then I'll let you enlighten us. 
would that be something like us saying, hey, people really like Williamsburg, so we'll charge them more or we'll tell them to live in Williamsburg, but actually their house is in this satellite city somewhere else where all their actual appliances and they sleep. And then they come to Williamsburg to do something, but it's just more expensive. Do you see more of the not just state availability, but execution, et cetera, migrating away from Ethereum in such a way that almost implicitly over time, everything is just elsewhere and maybe the branding or the community affiliation decreases to the point where we're no longer all Ethereum obsessed, wanting to have multiple layers on top, but you may have other ecosystems like Celestial, Eigenlayer, you name it, becoming more of a standalone stack. I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, if that will actually happen, but it would to a certain degree would definitely be rational. It's just that reality is not always rational. Like the, the best technology Never. doesn't always win. Yeah. So it doesn't mean rational think, uh, since I was like 12. Well, it's also, it also if, if a network starts stealing away enough mindshare from Ethereum in practice, you're going to see Ethereum pivot towards a similar role. And then they have like second mover advantage and the, the brand name. So I think that, yeah, unless the network's too stubborn, which also is a possibility. Like there, there's like infinite possibilities here. I don't want to predict the future. The only thing I can predict with certainty is that applications will eat up most of the uh, value of uh, blockchain systems in the future. And, and that they will need data. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And that's what I say is that right now it's too difficult to deploy an Oracle or a bridge across all these different networks. And with our first party Oracle, when we launched that, we grew to 3.5 billion over that in total value security in eight weeks. So the demand is there. But what happened was as we scaled it, we realized that it becomes a problem of monitor. It becomes a problem of security. It becomes a problem for the data providers, for the validators. And how the Oracle model works today, and this also applies to a lot of bridges as well, is a new L1 or L2 or whatever it may be pops up. They had developers that are interested in building applications on top of that layer. So they come to an Oracle and they say, we'd love for you to support the AVB rollup, right? And all of a sudden, the Oracle says, yeah, great. Sure, we'd love to support you too. It'll be six to nine months before we can deploy there. And the problem is that for a lot of these newer networks, they're either not built with EVM. They may be built with Rust or Move or Go, whatever it may be. And the problem is is that you can't just deploy your network that easily there. So in most cases, you have like six to nine months lead time before you get into deploying. And then on top of that, you have to justify it economically. So there's like a, a price that you have to pay in order to basically integrate. So you have resources on your team side, you have to negotiate with data providers, with the validators. And so this first party model just doesn't work at scale. And that's why most large oracles haven't really expanded to support outside of that core EVM chain space, which is Aurora is not even in there yet. There's Avalanche, Polygon, Arbitrum, Optimism, and that's pretty much it. Those are like the that, that EVM ecosystem that most leading oracles and bridges are looking to support and connect to it. With Zeta, we have done things differently where we built this basically layer one or layer zero, even if you will, that sits below the blockchain networks. And there we aggregate all of the data. So if you're a data provider and you're providing your suite of APIs, let's say it's a hundred different price feeds, you're providing that just the Zeta chain. So our overlay network fetches that, hosts on the Zeta chain. And then from there, we're just relaying that data to the different chains that are requesting it. And so rather than deploying our entire 
code base, our Oracle or bridge contract every single time and doing that as a separate consensus on every single network. We bring it to our own network once we achieve consensus there, and then we just bridge the results. And I think that this is where we're going. And this kind of leads into that conversation we were just having around Celestia and other rollups. It's getting easier and easier to deploy a specific uh, chain for a specific use case. And the future that I think Jasper also aligns with a bit is that we are seeing a future where the user can come in, plug into whatever protocol with whatever wallet they want from whatever, whatever chain, and they're able to have interoperability to cross any network that they wish to plug into. And in order to do that, you need a foundation for data that can flow from any blockchain in a secure way that doesn't require an audit every single time, that doesn't require individual instances for security. And that's what I see the future being around rollups and the L2s is going towards this sort of interoperability future. To extend you, the, I like the metaphor around Williamsburg, so I'm going to give you a metaphor as well. How I see Seta, what we've built, is today, any user can either deploy a smart contract or interact with the smart contract on Ethereum. That's what makes Ethereum great. Seta is a protocol where any smart contract can, or any user can deploy new price feeds and any smart contract can interact or data feeds and any smart contract can interact with these feeds from day zero. There's no permission. Anybody can query every data. Anybody can create a new feed and request new data. So where on Ethereum, you uh, pay for a deterministic computation to be done within its execution environment, SETA allows smart contracts to extend their power, essentially their ability, and also tap into non-deterministic data and computation using our network. So when we talk about data here, what kind of data are we talking about? Is it like the price of mangoes in Nicaragua, cars in Germany? Any data. Like what are we... Their data. Anybody can choose to make their data available to our network and they will be paid for it if people use it. The cool thing as well is that expand past, like the use cases that are always talked about because they're one of the most relevant today are price heats. But with our design, we've created for data providers as well. You could even have a private data set. And so we don't even require the data provider to reveal their API key to the network. They just reveal it to the node that's chosen at that time that basically that node is able to call that, that, that seed. And so you could even imagine a future where Ford could buy Tesla's AI for their driving on chain and be able to buy that, consume that and have that put on chain with a, like some type of encryption, whether it's ZK or something else, and be able to have that fully permissionless paid for in a fair market. And Tesla can say, we want to get paid 10 cents for every gigabyte of data that we upload and make that available to any other car manufacturer in a totally permissionless way for a cost per access basis. And we don't have to have any contracts or any type of sort of connection to that. We can just upload our data set and start sending it to any car manufacturer. So it can be really anything. The focus I would say for our go-to-market right now is definitely bridging and, and price speeds because those are the most accessible today. But really you can build any type of data feed on top of this. Would that be like a data marketplace or because, because I'm trying to think of how would people discover different types of data and how would they be able to vet the quality? Because my thesis has always been that when you have creators and innovators, we usually try to think of as many combinations as possible within the existing tool set. And the more tools or possibilities that you start to add, like the more possibilities, 
you know, so presumably if SEDA can open up a new world of access to data, both providing and or consuming, I, I'm trying to see how that would. That's great. Here's the way I look at it. It's definitely frameable as a data marketplace. I think that the way you ensure quality of data is there is two ways. One of them is by if I am Tesla and I am the only one that owns this data and I want to provide this data to the SEDA network, it's just reputation that's at stake. So if there is a mistake in a bug, it's like Tesla, right? Uh, but the, the way to do it with data that's more widely available, for example, price data, which is relatively subjective. So people have different sources have different granularity on price and such. So the, the, the queries will be slightly different. You don't query one source. What SEDA does is it allows you to essentially write smart contracts on how data should be queried and computed. So I can say, hey, I want to query prices, the Ethereum price or the Bitcoin price from 20 different sources. And then you can write an algorithm to how you want to aggregate that data. And then only the outputs is stored in our network, essentially. So we give developers the tools to make sure that their data is as secure as they want it to be. Interesting. And are there any limits or any priorities? Because with my legal background, there's just some types of data that are an absolute pain in the balls historically. And you can see like a slow transition or an attempt. I've got a friend, shouldn't give too many details, but anyway, they grew up in Venezuela and through their parents became Italian, Italian passport. They've been living in Europe for close to 10 years. And one of them is close to getting married. And I don't know why they asked for like the birth certificate. I think it's whatever they attach in the registry of your Italian ancestor. And it's like in some tiny village. Long story short, the paperwork doesn't exist. They can't find it. And it's how the fuck can you simultaneously be a citizen? You vote, you have a passport, but this one paper doesn't exist. And it's just crazy. Yeah. Can we just put all that shit load online and let people validate query? Well, absolutely not. Any data that you want to keep private, you should not put into our network at this point, at least. Uh, you can do it eventually with ZK, where you make it available through ZK, and then you can query it from any blockchain if you put it into our network. But definitely don't do that. And it's the same as like why you, it's the exact same as why you wouldn't put it on a web page. Because so, so data that's put into our network, is, that would be the comparison I'd make. Like it gets, it becomes illegal as soon as you do something that you also wouldn't put on a web page. Or, or behind an API key, if you, yeah, behind an API key is the best way to put it. The answer is like theoretically, yes, you wouldn't want to do it today because we haven't built any of the sort of encryption that you'd want to have for a document like that. But to give a more, a closer example, with this proxy node set that we've built, it allows any data provider to really easily post data to a network. And so it's really just exposing an API key and having a private key. And then you run this node, it's super lightweight. And then you can expose your entire data set. So to give a practical example, let's say you want to buy a property in the next year, let's say Portugal, you could actually have a notary who would basically sign on chain. They would transfer the deed to you on chain. You could do that with encryption, right? Which would probably be a good thing. In some of Europe, it's public anyway. So it doesn't make sense to have it encrypted, uh, which is why it's a good example. You could even do this like in an open registry. And then the uh, notary is just doing SH around chain that they approve this. And so you can start to get pretty granular this. Another example I think is quite cool is if you are a payments company, and this is something that I spoke to a couple of members from the Gnosis team about in, I think it was Paris or maybe Berlin. I forget where. It was, it was somewhere this summer. And basically, 
I imagine a future where you can have a balance that you deposit in, let's say, Gnosis Safe, and this can be on Ethereum, it could be on a rollup or on a sidechain. And from there, you just basically designate this address as this is my page account. You can deposit money to this account. And then from there, when you swipe your card at a terminal, let's say it's a MasterCard, when you swipe that card, it emits signal that you just made this purchase request for XYZ. That would be sent to a company that does this on chain. They would post that data via the API on chain, or it would be even in the future done directly by MasterCard, which would query your safe to see if you have that balance available. And if you have that balance available, and this is what, by the way, Gnosis is doing in a more centralized way right now with their Gnosis pay cards. But in the future, you could have that be one simple transaction where MasterCard says, AVB swiped his card at Starbucks. He bought a $5 coffee. He has a balance of $300 in this safe, and then we're going to now charge this. And so in the same second, and also it's expensive up there, but cheaper on sidechains, you could actually have that transaction happen, be executed in that payment, be given to the payment processor in a second, the same amount of time we would check if your payment was approved with a normal credit card. And so I think that with SATA, you can start to create very easy ways for data providers and when we say data providers, we mean really liberally, like MasterCard is an example, could very easily create this system in a permissionless way, basically taking away the need to partner with banks as a intermediary for custody. And so that's also a pretty cool use case that I think is pretty easy to grasp uh, that I wanted to cover. That's pretty wild. I remember during the bull market, I used to give the example of some sort of CFI, DeFi, like meaning in the middle. It was bizarre that you could buy a property, you know, like cash. You've got the assets in crypto, but yeah. according to the bank, you don't have any money because your income is in crypto. Even like a rental property, you would have a hard time demonstrating that you have the assets. So I was like, if there could just be a way for the banks to prompt your wallet, your assets, put it on some multi-seek, sign a transaction. I, I, I was trying to think of that connection and yeah. now I'm poor, but <laughs> excited that we're getting closer oh. to that world. A very easy way to do that is you could say, I have, let's say, $50,000 in USDC. I want to buy a property, put a down payment on a house. I have normal income. Like, let's say I make enough, I don't even know with interest rates, how much that be for $50,000 a month in payments on a $10,000 mortgage. No, but I, I think you could just create a safe and have the bank be added as a signer key to that and give them permissions. And the cool thing is that you can create an escrow and then have a contract in real life that says, or even a time-weighted contract that says, I'm going to de deposit this. And the terms are, it's going to be deposited either for 30 years or there's a liquidation event. So if an auditor were to say, yes, I can confirm that this happened, this house was sold and there's a new buyer, you get your deposit back or the bank get the deposit and send you the you know, full amount, or this would be locked up, right? And you could even say, the bank would buy on-chain T-bills with this, for that money, and start lending it out. The future that we imagine is closer now than ever before. I also these wild fantasies in the, over the past five years of what if we could do these cool things on-chain, but it was just, in, the infrastructure is never ready for that. It was just too far away. And I think now we're actually getting really close to a point where we can actually start building these tools. So the disclosure, I've been building a position in GNO, like Kenosis. I, I, th I think that they're like a pretty, pretty cool team. They have a lot of awesome products. And I think, yeah, that, that'll be pretty cool over the next five years, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's an adequate disclosure. Yeah. I think that's the weird loop 
that we're in, and, and I should, I'm considering, as you're saying it, renaming the podcast, the Wild Fantasies podcast, because we definitely always start with like a vision, very idealistic, real tangible ways in which we could improve an existing system or create new value with new consumer applications, whatever the case may be. And then pretty quickly, we realize that the infrastructure is just not there. And you can probably stop looking at different buckets. First, it's too expensive. Okay, then we go somewhere else. Now it's cheaper and I'm missing a, a bridge or it's too fragmented or, or whatever the case may be. Um, how close would set get us to being able to play with those ideas? If you have to summarize like a quick tech stack, quick and dirty, somebody has an idea. Yeah, that's a great question. I always have this very bold statement of, I truly believe that Seta will enable the next generation of Web3 applications. Because essentially we are opening up the entirety of the internet crypto applications. So you can go absolutely wild with the ideas of what you want to build to answer. Yeah. Wild ideas. The, if I'm a developer and let's say mid next year set out lives, there's a bunch of new rollups as a service companies that allow you to spin up a rollup that has cheap data availability costs in a few hours, you can spin up a new rollup in hours, then you deploy a set of relay contract towards on, on that rollup and you spin up a rollup, which is sorry, a relay. That's just like a Docker container. And you press like Docker run with the, with the points to your rollup. Guess what? You, now you have access to the internet. You can query the entirety of Seta's data. You can query the entire history, like even historic data, like data queried in the past by other people, and you can spin up new feeds. So if you need any new data that's not available on our network yet, you just spin up a new feed and now you have the data available to you. Literally speechless. That's awesome. I, I had so many thoughts at once. I'm overloaded. So with the data feeds, would most of it be like public or could you literally just set up almost like a private feed to enable almost like your own application or your partner's application on a blockchain component? In theory. In theory, depends on the data source. You could, what you could do is spin up a data source that's just for you. And in your feed, you have it encrypted to only be unlocked with some private key that you own. And then you can be the only one that has access to that data, essentially. There's, there, there is definitely ways to do that. It's, I don't see a big use case for it, but it's definitely a way to do it. I'll give you an example. It's also, no, wait, like, well, there's one thing, and, and this is great because I, I love this. I love that you're thinking about this and have ideas here because we build our product to be completely unopinionated, as I say. So you can build whatever you want, just like you can deploy a smart contract on Ethereum that kind of does whatever you want. So I'm very excited about like these new ideas and we really want to yeah, push that. So we'd love to hear your... I want to put OnlyFans on the blockchain. I'll go first. Yeah, can do that. To frame it properly for you, data is not an oracle, it's not a bridge. Theta is a, a, a foundational layer. And on top of that, you can build these modules that emulate an oracle or emulate a bridge or emulate whatever type of data use case you have. And then to the data feeds, you can build any type of feed that you want. If it has an API and you can query it, you can build with it. These are features that you can enable. You can do it with public data, you can do it with private data, you can have it with a revealed API key or a private one. And these are all things that you can toggle on and off. These are levers that you can pull when you set up the feed as a developer. And the idea that we're trying to push forward here is there is no future for existing oracles or bridges. There's SEDA and there's us creating interoperability between all networks. 
And there's modules that are built on top of smart contracts that perform different types of computation with that data. And then there's a data feed that you plug in. And I think that's the future that we're going to be living in. Are you trying to tell me that you're the chain link killer, the pie slayer, <laughs> the whatever the fuck the Chinese one is called? Like redefining what people understand to be an oracle. I think that many of the things that people are calling either an oracle or they call it a bridge, that they are application-specific oracles. And we're building essentially like a framework to spin up these things at, at will. Yeah, I, I have a pretty, pretty wild thesis that a friend of mine basically laid on me, and that is that every protocol is solving the Oracle problem. Every protocol is essentially needs an Oracle. And uh, yeah, we can dive into that deeper or we can leave it at that. Yeah, we've got the wild fantasies, the wild thesis. This is the wild the dig pics. This is getting out of control, but I think that he would be useful, especially if we think of a of an audience. And I'm meeting with my dad over the week and I'm bringing him over to Spain. We're spending Christmas together. So I'm thinking very cross-generationally now because I'm trying to explain to him what I do for work. And it's beautiful, quite interesting. If we had to define what an Oracle is, and I'm also put on timeline to tackle the assumptions that different people may have. Oracle, boomer level, it's a shitty tech company in the US, like old tech, but early tech. Like at some point they were innovating. And then you may have the more holistic crowd where an Oracle is, I don't know, something that descends from the mountain to give you wisdom. As we enter into the crypto stage, how would you define an Oracle or how would you define it over time? What was it meant to do originally? What is it doing now? And eventually, how do we get to, to SEDA? That's a great question. I actually started building, working. So before even considering building something like this, I started using them, which was back, but I don't know if Chainlink was live yet, but it was this other product called back then, it was called Oracleist. And then they changed their name and I forgot what they're called now, but it was called Oracleist. And I was using that because I was trying to build a on-chain risk, the game. I think it's also called the risk in English, like where you're a country with soldiers and you have to take over the, take over the planet. Essentially, it's pretty fun. But I was building like an, an, an on-chain version of that using oracles. So I think when oracles first came to the, the ecosystem, there was, oh, I remember why I used the oracles. I used it for entropy, so randomness. So that was like the first like use cases was for random numbers. Then I think price speeds really took over the narrative. And now there is bridges and interoperability that really are taking over the narrative. And like I said, those two things are just application-specific oracles to be specific. So it's like a subset of the things you can do with an oracle. The, the boomer way to describe it is it's, there, there's a few ways. I'll give it a try. And then Peter is truly the master of, of metaphors. So I'll, I'll give it a try. And I will probably the not be able boomers. to. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't have said that, but yeah, it's one, like one year older than just. Yeah, this bone is gone. Yeah. One way to look at it is if you have a blockchain as a country and a country has an internal economy and the internal, uh, internal economy is creating some sort of value. But as we've learned, partnerships with other countries is extremely valuable to, for growing your economy. That you have like this exponentialism and you have the ability to, for countries and groups of people to specialize based on certain conditions within their country, for example, and that create value. That's a lot of value. A blockchain by itself, without an oracle, is like a country that is not able to cross borders to any other place. And I'd say that metaphor for a bridge would be allow, allowing people to, to trade with other countries 
where with an Oracle, you're able to trade with other universes, essentially, like completely different things. Uh, yeah. Because I, I got the isolated country analogy. I was like, shit, that's pretty sad. If you think about it, if you have a smart contract, which is like a closed loop ecosystem, that's North Korea. And then the bridge could be literally like a port if, if yeah. you could get like raw materials in or out. And then the Oracle would be like the internet, like you could get information, data, we can stream in Hollywood movies. And I think that's a beautiful analogy. It's better than. Yeah. I like the universe one. We'll fit universe somewhere in there, but. <laughs> analogy is that blockchain networks are like islands. And assuming you have all the resources on the mainland, like all of the, well, let, let's say like they're parties on islands. So you have. All of the foods, all of the alcohol, all of the fun, right? And that's like the internet of today, where you have all of this data, all this information, and, and you have the ability to bring it to these islands. But right now, Chainlink is, and other oracles are like a, a ferry that just carries one type of food, one type of alcohol, and, and one record, right? Like per island. And so you have what, one type of music and one album that you can listen to. And they ferry that over and every single time they want to support a new island, they have to build a new ferry and they have to find a distributor that can distribute this new type of alcohol and this new type of food, this new type of music. What we're building basically is a, a framework to connect all of these islands basically by tunnel. So they're all interconnected. If a new island pops up, a new party, all of a sudden it could plug into that same logistic network. And the sort of idea here is that with Ethereum, it's a great example. Like in the bull market with Ethereum, you had all of these the liquidity, the users, and that was like the food, that was the people, that was the fun. And, and during the bull market, you started to see leakage. You started to see users start to swim to other islands. The alcohol is the liquidity. It started to move to other islands as well. And, uh, and suddenly the music started thumping on other islands. People tried to run an opportunity. The problem is that the framework that was built by bridges and oracles at that point was not able to maintain the vibe of more parties at once. So it meant you have to pick what parties to sustain and what parties just don't get to happen at all. And if you're a chain like Nier or, or, or other blockchains, you just didn't have the party, then you're out of luck. And so with Seda, we say, hey, we have these distributors on the mainland. We're going to get them filled with all the alcohol, all the food, all the music you want, all the top DJs, and they're going to be plugged into every single island and make sure that those parties are raging. And so if somebody pops up with the AVP roll-up and they say, we want to have a party within 24 hours uh, or even faster, if it's a EVN roll-up and, and you can deploy the relay smart contracts immediately, um, all of a sudden you're, you're partying with your friends and um, you're, you're able to have that sort of party immediately. And so that's the most simple analogy I can give to what SATA is doing with data. The best. You killed it. I, the, the, the party vibe mover definitely will resonate with at least some of my audience. <laughs> and it was very on point because I had written here on my very scattered notes, almost like a two-part question. I guess the first one would be, to what extent do you think this is a, you can agree, disagree, or pass type of question that the current big oracles were almost like kingmakers in the sense that if they didn't go to an island, the island is fucked. Or yeah. if you were to look at the other side of the coin, to what extent has that limitation to have more ferries and more food and alcohol in other places impaired the yeah, growth it, of new ecosystems? To, to touch on the earlier analogy of comparing Seda to Ethereum, I think that the previous like iterations of oracles, and it's, it's not just their fault. It's not that this 
choice. Like technology has advanced since they built whatever they built. So there's new standards, new ways to look at things. But I think that it would be as if you have an Ethereum in which the Ethereum DAO or the Ethereum Foundation essentially picks who can interact with the network. So I think you you made a great point there. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's a very good analogy. Yeah, to give another analogy, Ethereum in 2017 was like horse and carriage. And really, that was the only network that was really live. You had like Tron and EO and like other networks like that that were hoping to go live soon. But Ethereum was really like the only place. And so if you were designing, if I was designing an Oracle in 2017, I'd say, okay, we need a smart contract that someone can plug into that has high reputation in the centralized world and can push data, right? And that was the gold standard. Okay, this company has high reputation. They're well-known people, so they can just basically deploy. The problem is that model one doesn't scale across chains because you have to multiply the sort of feeds, you have to multiply the demand, you have to multiply the scale, you have to multiply all these things by every single chain you integrate. So the complexity immediately goes too high. And that's why legacy oracles haven't been able to keep up with the innovation. They just are stuck because they have a live product that's getting usage and they can't build this now fast enough to be able to support the market. Existing oracles are like horse and buggy. What we built with our first party Oracle, and this is what a lot of other Oracles in space today are building, they're saying we, we put new wheels on it, or we reordered the horses, or our horses are fed with wheat rather than great, like from crushed up corn. And so there's these like tiny fractional improvements. And, and we said our ages, we move fast on a new blockchain ecosystem near and Aurora and Evmos. We said, we're going to move quickly. I mean, we're going to, to just bite the bullet on that complexity of monitoring and security. And the problem was, is that we realized, oh wait, but this is still a horse and carriage. And if we want to drive on these new highways, we need something which is going to go faster and be able to actually do that mileage that we need. And so SATA is like a Ferrari. We've reinvented with the technology that's there today, what's possible. And, and the oracles that existed pre L1, L2 rollups, all these things being live, they just said, we don't need a Ferrari. We have one distance that we have to travel between point A and B and horse and carriage is enough. So if you can make that horse and carriage a little bit better, then that's already serving our needs and gives us that edge. Now we have this totally new highway system that needs to be transverse and that can't be done with a horse and carriage anymore. So that's why we went back to the drawing board, even though we had that traction with our initial product and said that this can't scale. We need to build something that redefines how data interconnects the real world in blockchains, basically. That's really interesting. I think that if I stop swearing, I can almost tick the box says that saying that this podcast is suitable for children. I love the analogies for a very complex and evolving tech stack. I think that we're really bringing it down to the masses and uh, I just keep writing silly examples. So when you mention the horse and carriage, true, but you almost need to look at the context as to why did people get so excited with the horse and carriage or why do we still try to do that? So the analogy in my head was like, yeah, sure, it's a horse and carriage, but it is owned by you. Like it's the first time that we own the bloody horse and the carriage. It's almost like we have a horse and carriage in a city that has a shitty tram owned by the government that takes you around. Even if the tram or the train are more efficient, now we own it and we can start doing things where the people are in control of their data and whatever. And the interesting thing is that say it is a Ferrari, but if you think of a Ferrari, 
you have the performance, but it's not really accessible by the people. So it's like that blend of we need to have something that it's not just more performant than what came before, because technically anything can beat the horse and carriage. We also need something that is better than Web2 or yeah. the traditional institution. To, to bring that analogy even simpler, imagine a grocery store and for the past five years, one single company decided for over a hundred billion dollars worth of people that wanted to buy goods, what cereal they could eat, what milk brand they got, whether they got juice or not. And they were the ones who decided what items that you can buy in a grocery store, which meant it totally limited. And this is now the developers, what types of meals you can make with that from those ingredients. Seda is a overall sort of accessible grocery store that any food is welcome. So any, anyone can provide their food to the grocery store chain that's then distributed across the entire world. So there's no sort of segregation of these grocery stores. They're all interconnected. So any ingredient is now available globally rather than in just, let's say each grocery store is a node. It's like Ethereum, it's Solana, it's near, et cetera. But now all the grocery stores share the ingredients. So you have a global supply and the developers can now say, wow, now I have chia seeds and I have pumpkin and I have all these different things. And I asked these oracles to provide that food for me. And they said, sure, if you want that ingredient for this grocery store, Ethereum, that's going to be $25,000 per year. If you want to add that to your local five EVM grocery stores, that's going to be a million dollars per year for this feed. And with Seda, we say, no, we're going to actually sell this on wholesale. We're going to allow the developers to buy their ingredients and make their products. And they're going to pay wholesale prices because we found, and this is what we can lead into next, a different way to monetize that food and that sale, which is called Oracle Extractable Value. And that's, I think that made the simplest explanation of how Seda redefines. So I think Ferrari is maybe not the best example, more like a utilitarian tank that can go 200 miles, miles per hour. Yeah, you got to be careful, mate, because if you're living in Germany and you don't give respect to the German machinery, you, you may be in trouble. Yeah, it's a Porsche um, let's say. <laughs> fun fact, I was in a bus going from Budapest to Poland when I had to migrate my EOS account from whatever they had before. I think it was the ERC-20 to the new EOS Spainet. And somehow, don't ask me how, don't ask me why, I've got all the private keys on both chains and shit. I was literally never able to claim I, I lost that. It was not that much at the time, but maybe it would have been worth something. And uh, yeah, disappointment. But maybe just an analogy to highlight how hard it's been to be an early adopter. To I mean, I was just swimming between islands. And then you arrive and you're like, oh, fuck, there's no alcohol here. Just <laughs> grab a couple slices of pizza and then swim to the next one. So it's been pretty rough. Now. You do have a beautiful segue into tokenomics. Jasper has been frozen the most beautiful way. Oh no, everyone's frozen. Can you hear me? No, we, we lost you for a sec. Okay. But you're back. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to take like a 30 second break and grab some water really quick and I'll be right back. Is that cool? Did you get a drink? Yeah. Okay. So I had the wireless headphones and Peter, did you get a drink? Yeah. What did you get? Oh, just some water. Come on. I heard someone opening a can and I got a beer. Ah, no, 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 that was me wrestling, I think, with my, with my bottle of paper. Or, I, I didn't know. Let's get one. It's misleading and deceptive otherwise. Yeah, I, I, I think the only thing I have is like a magnum bottle of champagne. 
get this bridge here that we got for, I guess, like an engagement present for one of our friends. And it's, I don't know, like eight, hang on. It's like probably four times the size of a normal bottle. I'm like, you open this without a group of 40 people. And I remember the whole night I had to carry it around. And it was like this big around. I was like, this is just like an unreasonable, large bottle of champagne. Sounds a little bit excessive. You got to do yeah. what you got to do. I, 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 I don't really drink that much, but this beer was left behind. Like someone that came from Argentina to New York and bought it at some airport. Okay. And I already traveled from Lisbon to Porto with it. And I was like, look, I'm not going to get on a plane again to go to Madrid tomorrow with the beer. So I guess I just have to drink it. But we're about to talk into the pricing model. We have like a, two options for pricing data, right? So the first one is that you as a data provider can basically say, hey, every time a seed requests our data, I want to get paid X amount of tokens, essentially like X amount. Then we have a more interesting revenue model for the network, which is we call, or like we, we reference it as that. Um, OEV is short for Oracle Extractable Value. And what we touched on earlier, this is a good callback with why applications are going to be the profit centers of, of Web3 is because they own the first entry into the transaction supply chain. So that means that they own the transaction and they can choose where they send it. They can send it to a private mempool. They can send it to the mempool itself. And if they send it to a private mempool, what you'll see is that they'll actually start getting rebates for sending order flow to these mempools. Because these mempools essentially sell off, the, the private mempools sell off the order flow to block builders or other types of make it available to certain searchers or whatever. And since the application is the one that has the monopoly on these transactions coming in, they're going to have to be rewarded for supplying these transactions to the network. So Stata owns the entire Oracle transaction supply chain. So that means that we create the transaction that changes blockchain state, and that change creates potential value. And if there's potential value, what today, if there's a price feed update, for example, on Ethereum, what you'll see is that there's a gas horse. So whatever value the price change that ensues after the price change enters the mempool or enter state, searchers bid a percentage of their percental profits in gas fees to be included right after the price feed is updated. What we're doing is we are actually auctioning off the rights to bundle your transaction with the Oracle update so that you are guaranteed to be the first one to execute on this new Oracle state. So instead of the destination layer one, having gas wars where the layer one validators are essentially being paid or bribed to include the transaction right after the Oracle update. Now it's our network. So what this translates to is pushing data on chain changes blockchain state. This blockchain state has a direct value. It's hard to calculate the value. It's what searchers do. That's how they make money. But there is a way to calculate the value of, a, of an Oracle update. And since it's a competitive market, and it's a public auction, there's going to be many searchers that are going to be bidding to be the first the, to have their transaction bundled with this Oracle update, which means that we will earn a percentage of the direct value the Oracle creates, Oracle updates create on chain. And we split that value with the network, which enables it and does the computation. And we split it with the data provider itself. So now data providers have a way to monetize, not only on a per transaction basis, but they actually get paid based on the direct value 
their data has for the network. This is wild as fuck. Yes. I think I recall Peter explaining this to the Radio Lay One guys. And maybe because I was in a fucking bus trying to find my way, but I summed it up as obviously people need data, so they'll pay for it. And there's just like a long tail demand there. But the way that you're explaining it, it's pretty badass. I understood correctly. And this makes a lot more sense if we focus now just on the price feeds. I'm not entirely sure who would be interested in bidding to be the very first ones to get my images from OnlyFans. But if we focus on the price feeds, are you saying that the way that SATA works, they can bid to be on the same transaction, which means that you would be technically front running every single other Oracle? Not so. Very important distinction. We will not allow you to front run Oracle updates but will allow you to backrun them. Backrunning is to be the first one, to be guaranteed to be the first one to be executed after a state change, right? So front running is you're executed right before, backrunning is being executed right after. But you're able to front run, oh, when it's called front, you have backrun the transaction. But the, yeah. an important distinction is that because the transaction is bundled together with the price update, that's delivered in the same block. So normally if you have a, a protocol that's requesting data, they request data in one block. The second block, the data is provided on chain. And then in that third block, after that data has been consumed by the protocol, then searchers are able to calculate and, and execute that transaction to do whatever it is, like an ARB or, or whatever it may be. With SATA, because it's bundled into the metadata of the transaction for the price update, you actually are leading searchers that are on that native L1. So if you're a searcher on Ethereum, but that protocol is consuming data from SATA, you actually have to move your searcher operation from Ethereum to SATA and start bidding on our block space in order to actually get that transaction. So we're really vampire attacking the, the validators where they are normally earning this gas war and bringing that to SATA for any use case that has OEV. So it's a really cool mechanism we built in. That's insane. First of all, thanks for the clarification, the front running and the back running. Most people just get somewhere stuck in the middle and they don't really know what the difference is. And I think it would be good to clarify as well, because I use the term very broadly. I guess what I meant was, it's almost like a flash loan where, yeah, because it no, executes no, no. in the you, same block, it gives you superpowers. You totally get it. You totally and if get you it. do it through SATA, you're technically three blocks ahead somebody else. So yep. when you get to choose your providers, yes. you'll go for the one that gives it to you faster. Bo both exactly. of you are. It's just that if you say front running the Oracle upgrade update, that's just, just honestly like a, a thing you don't want to have out in public because it's not exactly true, but it's, it's the technical term is back running and back running is a lot less yeah. frowned upon Look, yeah, or, I or dubious. I dislike running in general. So whether it's from the front or the back. <laughs> and to clarify for your understanding, the part that we're canalizing is that instead of the L1 validator getting this value from these gas wars in the bidding, the SATA validator gets that. And what we're doing is we're making it impossible for a searcher to beat a searcher on SATA because it's in the same block. So the searcher on Ethereum is going to always have to try to take advantage of the ARB in block two, oh. but the searcher can always be included in block one if it comes from our org. So the, the cool thing is, the cool thing is because you can do that on Ethereum as well. Uh, you can also have your transaction bundled the same block, but the fact is that the way we're bundling the transaction, you cannot even do that. So it's not even the, just the same block. It's actually in the same bundle as it's called. It's semantics, but yeah, you get it. So to be clear, you would be outbidding the validator 
to get the information from the native Oracle or whatever it's called from the native first party protocol, Oracle, whatever from the chain link. And then with SATA, you're basically able to do it in a more efficient way. But that's exactly right. And you decrease network load because there's no more gas wars, right? So the, there's no gas wars on the layer one. Every time there's an Oracle update, we just build custom auctions to, to like decrease load on the layer sure. one. That's like how, that's the benefit. Cause I remember, I think every male teenager has a face where you trade Forex and, and I've always been the intellectual type. So I did a lot of reading and studying before losing all my money. And there were specific events that I always looked out for things like interest rate announcements, like a non-farm payroll. I had my FX calendar and I had some pairs I lived an eye on. And as a pleb, I was always really annoyed that the nanosecond that the information comes out, there's a big spike. So basically to me, the only way to make money was just to take not even educated guess and just pick a side and either you make money or you get wrecked, but otherwise you miss out. And I was really annoyed because it seemed to me like insider trading at the time, which may well have been, but more so over time, it's definitely trading. Like basically the person with the best tools and the best access to the information would be able to just execute faster. It's definitely not human, not, not by any chance. So I can see how this would be revolutionary. Do you have any estimates at the moment on roughly how much money is going to validators in this kind of bidding or it, is it like a market yeah, segmentation? It's hard to pin down. It's very, it varies with volatility, just like how any sort of really like market condition, like any market participant loves volatility, like sophisticated actors love volatility because that's where there's a lot of, there's lots of spreads, like there's uncertainty, people trading around. So that's where most money is made. Regarding the percentage uh, that goes to the, to the validators today, it depends on the strategy. So if you're doing, for example, lending market liquidations, that's a very competitive strategy. So you're seeing like up to 90% of the profits going to validators today, where the more exo exotic strategies, like crazy shitcoin trades on like strange L2s, there's not a lot of competition there, so a very low amount of the profits would go to a validator there. So it varies a lot, but, and it's based on the uh, competition. And I think the latest that actually our head of BD, Stefan was doing research on this morning, and I think MEV as an, as a, a global sort of value is around between 600 and 650 million on Ethereum, but it's hard to track. This exists on every network, right? And it's large. It's a big, it's a big big market. It's very hard to track down exactly how much it is because it really depends on what you're tracking for and what you're looking at. But yeah, I would say that it's, it's, it's a pretty large market in Ethereum alone today. And I think it's going to be a much bigger market over the years on, on other L1s and L2s. Yeah. It's one of those worlds that I feel like I've been pretty involved since 2017 and I'm constantly like updating my mental frameworks. I started with, I guess, like the anti- middleman institution have trust embedded in smart contracts and you've got DeFi and there's like many layers to the pie now, including some that are actually not really driven by ideology or, or maybe like a utopian vision. Some is just, we're going to make some fucking money. And MEV is one of those things that I've listened to a few podcasts. I get it. But every once in a while, there are these crazy news that come up 
that I absolutely love. The most recent one was with a Kyber hack. Sad story. I lost some money. Literally the day before, I added money to a WSG ETH, ETH pool because I thought, fuck it, it's a stable pool. No impairment mm-hmm. loss. Wreck. But the funny thing is that when there are hacks like that, it's crazy that the validators front run the hacker and are able to capture a big chunk. So now you actually, actually have multiple. Yeah. It's actually uh, searchers that do it. It's not the validators. So the, ser- the validators are running like these block building. You have block builders and searchers and block builders propose blocks to validators that could be very profitable. And it's the searchers that come up with the strategies and end up going, taking a lot of money, but also the validators are getting a large percentage of this as well. It's super wild. Yeah. So technically those are the searchers that would pay for the SATA data feed to be able to be best That's positioned. Right. Yeah. That's right. To go back to that ferry analogy with the island, imagine, and I'll just give like a, it doesn't really relate to the other analogy, but just like it's a good sort of way to look at it. Imagine what a validator proposes like a block. So it's, it's an oracle pushing data on chain. Imagine that if for Perry, a block builder is preparing what data is allowed on the ferry. So like what food and drinks are going on there. And then searchers are like passengers that are like, I'll pay this much money to ride along with that food and alcohol to this party that I can take a big chunk for myself and steal it and be like, okay, I, I found this opportunity. Now I'm going to look here and some key for myself. And, and whoever pays the ferry operator the most is the one who's then going to sit on that ferry on the ride over. And th- that, that's like a very simple explanation of what MEV is basically. I love it. We've all done it. This may say more about me than about oracles and bridges, but if you are smart and on the chubby side, we all stand close to the kitchen or like the door where the food comes out at a party or some cocktails or whatever, because those, uh, what's it called? The finger food platters don't last a long time. You want to be the first one in to get dips. You have as much as you want. That's, that's awesome. Now imagine with Seda. So, so with that, it's like, uh, the, the food comes out and it immediately goes into this pool where everyone starts to grab from it and whoever can grab the most and pay the most for it wins. With Zeta, it's like the searcher is included. They're on the platter. So they're brought out and they get the food before it even reaches the Ethereum searcher. Basically. So it's like to take that example of the stream, the second it comes out, you're joined with the server and you're eating all of that before it even reaches. It sounds like you're in the kitchen. I, I have a good, I have a great analogy for this, for MEV specifically. Okay, so... Let's say there is a sale of a very exclusive handbag, for example, at a store and the store is selling it for 15K. And you know that on the secondary market, you can flip it for 20K. All you're doing, so you have a 5K profit to be made, is you're paying a percentage of your profit to the bouncer to put you in front of the line. That's literally what it is. It's you're willing to pay a percentage of the money you're about to make on a, a guaranteed deal or, or a deal that you envision, like an ARG, and you're paying a percentage of the profits to the proprietor in order to get ahead. That's the... Yeah, yeah and I don't hate the player, hate the game. One thing I would like about crypto is that even if you don't like it or don't understand it, it is better because it is accessible to more people. There's a fairness element to anyone being able to do it. Because if, if, if we go back to the Robin Hood example... A lot of people got into Robinhood 
because I guess there was like a sense of unfairness in the financial markets and it was like the little guy against the big guy. And a lot of us learned during that incident that Hood was free because they sold transaction flow to somebody else who was front running them or, or, or trading against them in unfair ways with information that was not accessible to somebody else. So in some ways, it's look, you may get a better or a worse deal. The important thing is that the information is available to anyone and you can participate like an equal. Whether you want to pay or exactly. not, that's a separate story, but it's having access and transparency and... That, that is exactly right. And democratizing the access to this data through like public auctions is the only way, only fair way to do it. I hate the word democratizing because people that have no idea in crypto always have it in their slideshows. But in this case, it may be true. It may be the only case. Peter, yeah. I want to change direction slightly, get more to the philosophical side. We'll come back to the tech in, in a tiny bit. You get credited for something very special, something very unique, something very powerful. Something that it's almost like the renewable energy of the mind, the gift that keeps on giving. I've had many talks with other Mendias, including probably one of the most famous uh, podcasts. And when he describes that journey of the open forest protocol, there's a pivotal moment when it goes from being an application, becoming a protocol. And Ozzy often credits you with having a conversation and really opening his eyes on the possibility of building if I recall correctly, it'd be something like protocol where you can have basically a, sorry, a platform yeah. where there's just more pieces and more people can plug into it. It's just like a bigger way of thinking. So I'm really curious to learn more about how you see the world, that protocol platform play. I'm assuming that some of those values or insights obviously play into SEDA and its evolution into becoming its own multi-chain layer, base layer protocol. Yeah, I think like Jasper and I saying, but share the same philosophy around that, where we're building the protocol to be totally permissionless and transparent, right? And so I believe that in the same way that, and we use this analogy, we call SATA the HTTP for Web3 and HTTP for Web2 is an open permissionless protocol for data transport. In the same way, like my philosophy in crypto has always been Let's build open permissionless tools, right? And then on top of that, you can always build monetization layers. You can always sort of create products and businesses. But from, from my perspective, it's always been trying to focus on where's an actual use case. And I think a lot of times in crypto, there's a solution built looking for a problem. And, and in, in the early days, I think of crypto, there was so much experimentation, like 2018, 2019, 2020. It was really just like building solutions for problems that we thought we might have. And a good example of this is transactions per second and all of the sort of scalability nonsense with new layer one, layer twos, et cetera. Like scalability is important, but we don't even need scalability right now. There, there's a need for it. There aren't users that would warrant that type of scalability. And I think now we're starting to get to a point where that might be more important, but we're also starting to get to a point where you can build networks in a way where you don't need a billion users on one layer one. Like that's just insane. You don't need that. You can spread the use cases across shards or, or rollups or, or whatever it may be. My philosophy has always been, let's design a product and protocol that creates something that's open, transparent, easy to use, but actually has a real use case. And that use case today is open the internet to crypto 
And then we'll see where the businesses are on top of that. And I think that we're already starting. I mean, like today we talked about some of these businesses with selling data and, and you have your own media and content ideas, right? You want to build the state apps. But generally speaking, I think that we think from first principles and then from there continue on. And, that, and that's what we always try to do. Jasper, if you would like to add anything to that, you're obviously more than welcome to. I agree with Peter. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing to add. The Bill Gates definition of a platform that often get quoted is the value created on top must be greater than the actual platform. And it's like a very simple heuristics, but I guess that there's a lot implied there around it being like a base layer, literally to enable other people to then unlock value. And I guess the example that they give is that there's been a trillion dollar economy, multi-trillion, probably the entire world has been built on top of Windows and on top of the Excel suite and like spreadsheets. That's why when people think of what to build, understanding whether you, even if you're going to be infrastructure, are you just infrastructure or are you a platform? You're like, look, anyone can come and build here. Th there must be like a different set of assumptions or what makes it the raw technical, it works as opposed to the, the enabler for the masses. I think uh, there's been a very wrong assumption in crypto for a long time, which is if we build it, they will come. Building a successful, call it protocol or platform, requires you to be realistic with growth and how you plan on actually onboarding people. And I think that the bear market and the bull market are definitely different environments for this. You have a lot of, you have a lot of people lose sight of what's important and lose sight of the next step for their product in the bull market. And then they were fighting the bear market. And I think that Jasper and I, we've been through two of these cycles now, probably entering sometime into the third now, hopefully soon. I think that generally speaking, people say that like crypto is ready. In my opinion, like we solved or we tried to solve scalability, but a lot of the legacy tooling also has to be upgraded as an example for data that needed to be upgraded, that wasn't ready for prime time. And I think that we would have a bigger DeFi ecosystem had we had oracles and bridges that were ready for that type of scalability and adoption. But when you look back at the start of DeFi summer with Uniswap and Compound and Aave, et cetera, like there really, there wasn't a DeFi summer on, on any other chains. There really weren't other chains. And it wasn't until really like the launch of Polygon and Avalanche and Solana and Near that we started to see the possibility that actually ecosystems might exist outside of Ethereum. And I think that the stack wasn't actually ready for that yet. For us, and I don't know, maybe Jasper has a different opinion, but building these necessary tools first into that stack is what we spent the past 18 months trying to figure out the best way to do that to make sure that Seda is the best option into the next 10 years, there will be a state of V2 and a state of V3 and a V4, right? We're going to keep building and, and not stop with this mainnet launch. But following that, then you really enable value. And you solve for these problems where you said when you're on a bus and you lost access to your, to your keys or things just didn't work. That's an experience that a lot of users just don't come back from. And it's, it's really hard back in crypto. Fun fact, that's actually my very first crypto experience is I bought ETH at 8 euros, $8, I think. I forgot when. And I bought a bunch. And then I downloaded some wallets that was called Mist Wallet. And Mist Wallet is something that's called a light wallet, which I now know what it is. But back then I had no idea what it is. It means it needs to sync a light note in order to know what the chain state is so that it can check your balances and blah, blah, blah. 
So essentially, I download this wallet. I sent ETH to the address that's associated with the wallet. And the thing starts syncing and it takes three, four hours. And me not knowing anything about crypto, I'm like, oh, I'll just reinstall it or something. Like maybe there's like a bug or something. So I just reinstalled it and I lost all the ETH. It wasn't that much. I was a very, I was like a student, but it was like at least 10, 12 ETH back then. That, that's a, a horrible story. And actually I was talking to some of our engineers and I think I can still recover that like somehow if I find the laptop, I should be able to find those keys somewhere in the CPU, but I'll save that for when ETH hits 10 K. By the way, I also sent ETH to an ETC address on a centralized exchange and lost, lost a fit there, but yeah. Peter, you shared a tweet recently from Move VM, which makes me wonder about Zeta's approach to but there's two questions there, really. The first one would be more like a gen general approach to go to market. Are you talking to the base layer, targeting the applications? Like, how does that look like? What is Stefan doing day to day? Yeah. But the second one would be, or I'll let you run with that first. Yeah. I won't say too much. I think we are pretty, we're pretty unique clear go to market right now with SATA. And I think it's not a way that a lot of oracles or bridges are coming to the market. I will say that. SATA is very attractive for a lot of L1s and L2s because we are able to support them right out of the box. Um, so if they're EVM compatible, every single EVM chain can start integrating with SATA the second that we launch, um, which is amazing. So the developers can access the data, they can start building modules, they have access to bridging data. Um, from day one, we can support EVMs. Following that, we will launch support for select non-EVM networks, and there may be even a few that we include that will be announced later into the initial rollout of SATA with their own relay contracts. The reason why I tweeted about Move, and we also recently announced with Caldera as well, th this sort of description that Jasper gave about being able to wrap SATA up into a deployment. So if you deploy your own layer two or deploy your own app chain or rollups, in the future, we want SATA to be a tool that's just there. Just you might have Internet Explorer or U2 on like your Apple iTunes. We want SATA to be there when you load up. And so the idea is that with our go-to-market, we don't have to prioritize ecosystems anymore. And that was a big thing in our last sort of BD push is obviously we did a really good job by growing our market so fast to become a second largest Oracle in two weeks and also in the lifespan of that product for about a year until we took it down to focus on SATA and the launch now, I think we enabled about 152 billion in value on chain. So for a team of, I guess we were six to push that out, it really showed that we are David going up against Goliath, but now the tables are turned. We don't need to say how many developers does this chain have, how much, you know, money have the projects raised, who are the founders, what are their go-to-markets? which is a huge overhaul for a BDT to go through and really, you're, you're almost acting as like a VC to make bets on an ecosystem to say, we think this ecosystem is going to be valuable or not. Now we can just say any ecosystem that wants access to data or be able to communicate with another blockchain can from day one. So I won't say more than that on the initial sort of rollout plan, but you can know that SATA will support any EVM from launch and other networks soon after that as well. And one really cool side point that me as the CTO has to make some semantics there. We said that we would be support any VM chain at launch, but if there is a move chain that wants to write a relay contract, 
with, which is what we call like the entry point into a network. Anybody can write, a re it's not up to us. If you, are a, if you have a move chain and you write a contract that can parse our proofs, you now can query our data. We don't even have to know about it even. I think that's, the, that's truly the power of what we build here. Peter, I was joking at first, but you're making some um, YouTube references in podcast, uh, on iPods. We just got to be there whether you wanted to be or not. <laughs> yeah. So for people that may not have been born when that happened, there was this hilarious, how would you call it? Like a marketing kind of thing. At some yeah. point, the iPod, was it an iPod or an iPhone? What was iPod? I think it was, I think it was just like all, anything with music or I think it was still called iTunes at that point, but any say that had access to iTunes or music, yeah. So there was a point in time where every product, Apple product that had music capability in it automatically came with the YouTube album preloaded. This is pre-Spotify, pre-everything, like you had to load your stuff. And as it turned out, a lot of people don't like YouTube and there was no way to get rid of it. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of memes and a lot of cultural baggage there, but on a more serious note, I, I do remember I bought my first MacBook in 2008. And it sounds crazy, but at the time, a lot of people were t advising me against it because of the compatibility issue. And you still had a problem of some apps that are just not available for Mac. Yeah. And I almost had to do like the trade-off of, look, that's fine. I just won't use Microsoft Office. And it was interesting to see both the increased adoption of the MacBook or, or like the, the, the Mac OS as an alternative operating system but also how the internet in many ways standardized the access to applications. And I almost see the potential of SATA in a similar way. If you may have data feeds from someone going in, whatever, say some banks, some stock exchange, whatever the case may be, they can choose their entry point, whatever they're most comfortable with. But if you could have access to that data on a different ecosystem so that you can build with the tech stack that you feel more comfortable with, then it's almost like you have the best of both worlds. Yeah. A good way to look at it is that on the, trying to, to, to relate it back to your Mac example, like on the Microsoft Office side, like it would be like if you could plug your application into one sort of data transfer service and make that available on any computer you wanted without having to write a custom deployment of that software to the new system. So it'd be like if tomorrow we decide to pivot and build a new computer, if we had a SATA for Web2, that new application could deploy in a custom VM on that computer. With SATA, the data providers no longer have to understand what crypto is. They can plug in. And the pitch is very easy to them because we say, listen, you can plug in your entire suite of endpoints into our one node. And, and monetize it across any chain. And as the demand increases, so is your revenue. And then we have this little carrot called OEV, which will be probably the most way you'll make money into the future, but it's super abstract. And until the money starts blowing it, you probably won't really understand it. And that's fine. Obviously for the more crypto native data providers, they, they understand the opportunity for OEV and really get, that's a very cool way to monetize. And I think like one thing that Jasper didn't mention, which is something he mentioned at his talk in Paris is that with OEV, we believe that these price feeds can eventually become free because right now you have to pay for data. And a lot of oracles tried to subsidize it, but it's just too expensive at this point to subsidize the data. For some feeds, you have to pay a million dollars per network to integrate. And so as you're paying a million dollars per year for one feed per network, 
that's a lot of money for a startup. And that means that most startups just don't have access to that type of data. And even if it's a less popular feed or a less popular chain, you have to assume one, there's an Oracle there to support you. And two, that you have the budget to pay to the seed that you want to bring on chain. And so with SATA for the data providers, they can plug into this one network, deploy their data to any chain. And then for the user, like you don't have to pick a, a, an ecosystem. You can say, I know Rust, so I'm going to build it here, or I know Solidity, so I'm going to build it here. And I'm just going to be able to deploy my protocol. I'm going to get be able to get access to any data, but I'm also going to be able to get access to any users in the future that want to interact with SATA. And I think I can't say what now, but there's already solutions being built that could create this sort of like omni user environment. And I think SATA will be a big piece of powering that in the future. So I think to get back to your analogy of the math book, like that sort of future where you just can open it, buy your new product and have access to anything you want from anywhere is the future we want to create for developers and users in crypto. We've talked a lot about oracles. Let's talk about bridges for a minute. Sure. There's been a lot of attention and focus and people call it narratives, information and stories really that enter the mainstream and people are just run with it. To be fair, I did start using layer zero recently and it works really well. It's a big upgrade from other things in the past. How does SATA compare or if we were to put it in like a matrix landscape, yeah. messaging layers like Axlar or layer yeah. zero with, with her thing. The way to look at this is with layer zero specifically, we've actually worked with them. They need an Oracle that one of the components of configurations that you select when launching a bridge on layer zero is an Oracle. So they have an Oracle and a relay service. The relay service is like a centralized person, which is essentially, so essentially layer zero is like a multi-sig of a Oracle that you can pick and a relayer. And both of those things can be configured pretty broadly. So I see there, there's definitely room for cooperation. Like Seta could be an Oracle for layer zero. Like you could build a, you could build a bridge using Seta as an Oracle. We've built an NTP of that in the past with the first party Oracle. I think what's interesting about Sedan's infrastructure is that it actually, it's, it's quite, we have a similar setup. So when you request data from Seda, you have a decentralized Oracle that selects data providers to query whatever data could be state from another chain. And you can select what we call anchor nodes. And an anchor node is essentially a centralized entity that runs the same computation as the DSR network in parallel and also reports their outcome. So in theory, you could build something like layer zero on top of Seta without having to configure the Oracle, without the Oracle risk, because it's a decentralized Oracle running it essentially. So I think that's the way to look at it. We are not focused ourselves on interoperability at all, but we do see it as one of the major use cases that can be built on top of our network. And as a matter of fact, I've been, yeah, cannot talk about this anywhere. No, sorry. Too much I'll be on the go for... Yeah, we go for seven hours to, to take down the barriers and get yeah. the alpha. No, get if I would dive into this, it will take 30 minutes. No, that's, so I'm just <laughs> going to drop that. But the, the, there is a lot of opportunities for new products that have interoperability built in that couldn't be done with other Oracle's interoperability protocols and really require a product like Seta. And I'm going to leave it at that. It, it, it's funny because we've actually talked to a lot of the bridge providers. And, and also Oracle teams actually at the blockchain Oracle summit. And a lot of the teams have tried to focus on ways to make the user experience really simple, how to bridge places if you don't have gas to that chain, 
of oracles. It's been, how do we aggregate data the cleanest way and, and trim out outliers and et cetera, et cetera. And the coolest thing about data is if an oracle finds that they have a really cool way of creating aggregation, but they don't want to solve the interoperability problem of being able to connect that data anywhere, they can actually launch their Oracle as a module on top of data. So if you're an Oracle out there that wants to build cool price feeds and cool aggregation or any type of data aggregation, you can now bring that and deploy it right onto our network. And the same thing for bridges, if you're an EVM specific bridge, yet you want to support, let's say Aptos or SUI, and you don't want to spend the time deploying there, then you can just deploy your bridge and use SATA as this backend, that test pilot that we ran with layer zero. And, and I think layer zero is in the hot stage right now because they announced Google as their centralized Oracle. And I think that with the launch of SATA, they will actually be a pretty decentralized way to, to bridge data and they can build layer zero on SATA on the top of our stack and eliminate that sort of risk potential there. Wow. I feel like I got some alpha. I'm not sure. I've, yeah, I feel like I got some, there's some juicy bit there. We always reward the patient who persevere with us till the very end. That's awesome. Okay, I have a few sneaky questions. I I like product. I dream of the day where the infra will be ready for us to just focus on having experiments and building cool shit. Almost like you can do now with whatever, no code and AWS and whatnot. If, hypothetically, you were born a couple of years too late and somebody else already built SATA, it's there ready for you to take, what would you build? I cannot give the answer because that's the thing I was about to say earlier, what I would build, but I, I can think of something else. I'll, I'll let Peter go first. That's a really good question. Yeah, I, I know what Jasper's talking about. And I think the key is always to look for builders who are hungry, that are a little bit younger than you, that want to build these cool things. Yeah, if I had to build something else. It could even be like a side hobby, something that just really maximizes the potential of the technology in a way that you can do something cool and fun. That hasn't been done before. Yeah, that's a hard question. I, I think honestly, like that payment idea is quite cool. I think if I was going to go back, I, I hate banks. I won't go into it. I had a, a very annoying struggle with a bank that involved me paying a very expensive law firm for many months to get my money back. A neo bank, I'll say that, like without cause. And so fuck banks, like hard. I hate banks. And I think that if I were to do something again, like, I'd probably create a product that allowed you to totally abstract the need for an intermediary like a bank, because I think they're not looking out for the best for their user. And I think payments is such an outdated, even like things like credit cards are just like a means to an end, but the actual custody, like having your money in a bank and then having that basically in T-bills and high risk loans for mortgages and whatever it may be. I think that product sucks. And so if I had to start a new company, it'd probably be in the payments and custody space. And I think that, that there's a lot of opportunity for building there, in my opinion. I would be Sign working me on, up. I, I would be working on chain abstraction using SETA. And that is actually alpha. Okay. Okay. Sign me up as an early investor in both. I've got exactly 450 bucks ready to disperse. <laughs> That's interesting. You mentioned noses before. And I'm curious because I would imagine that you guys have a very good exposure to many ecosystems and are keeping a, a finger in the pulse of many different tech developments. Are there any other projects or like pieces of the tech stack that you're particularly excited about now that you're monitoring? Any opportunities out there for people to go check out? Yeah. This is the point where I show my bags. Is that what's going on? Yes. 
ZK every day. <laughs> okay. Let's go. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a CK bull, and it's because I come from working with cryptography for Plasma for a long time. I just know that these innovations take such a long time to get to market that I think it's hard to find a good entry. As soon as I see use cases in the wild actually being used and affordable, I'll start deploying where I find necessary. I have some friends working in the space that I would back. But I think for me, I so low-hanging fruits for me is certain perp DEXs and application-specific L2s. Product that I love, they know I love the product. I tweet about it sometimes. It's Avo. It's from the Ribbon team. It's perp DEX. Uh, every, it's the only that perp decks I use. What else is there? There's some more cool stuff. There's some L1s that I find really interesting. Actually, like Nier and Solana have become pretty big things I look at. I think Nier is entering a narrative where they're really, the, the philosophy of what Ilya has been tweeting and talking about really matches mine. So he, he's been talking about chain abstraction, using Nier for DA. That type of stuff is really something I, I, I enjoy a lot. What else is there? Other than that, I'm actually, I look at the trends, but I don't look as much at the, at investments opportunities that much. So I look at trends like modularity is hard to back, right? If, if modularity is the future, like what do you, what's the right pick to back? And I have, I'm pretty exposed to SETA, so I'll, I'll choose SETA. Well, I, chilling bags is always great. I know the SBF is slithering from prison and Gary will too soon, but I was referring to it more from a, like an intellectual curiosity. I've noticed that most of the cool shit now either doesn't have a token or it's in development. Probably you'll pro you'd be better placed just getting involved actively as a contributor than just buying yeah. something passively. There's, so from an intellectual point of view, anything that catches your interest. A bunch. A ton. Peter, go for it. Yeah. There's one team that I like specifically we know them well is the Uma team. And Hart's a backer of Seda as well. They're building a third-party Oracle. And so they're in the same realm with Seda. So both focus on bringing data on chain. They focus on different type of data. And they're a super brilliant team. They're also behind Across as well, the bridge. They're a team that I think is very long-term focused. They've been in the space for a while. They've been consistently building interesting tech. I think like them and the Gnosis team, I've always found quite interesting how they are able to continue innovating. Uh, and those, I think those are the two teams I, I like a lot. I, I follow quite closely. I think like Jasper said, Nier and Solano have a lot of respect for Ilya and for Raj and Anatoly. We've known them both for a long time now, and I'm excited to see on both network what happens. The Sadly A team, I think is really cool as well. Like they're building a lot of really cool tech and a lot that's in the work for now that I can't talk about, but a lot of like really cool features that might be coming out in a while. And what's the name again? Sablier. Lear, Sablier, money streaming. Depends on who's pronouncing it. And uh, yeah, I think those are probably like the tops. There, there's a ton of interesting stuff being built. It's, with, with Seda, like we, we have so much that we're building right now. It's very hard to open your peripherals. The last bull market, Jasper, I did some angel investing where we thought it could be interesting. Also, even if it's relevant for Seda. But right now, I'm so bullish for what we're building. It's very hard to pull ourselves out of that rabbit hole. Exactly. The areas would be like account and chain abstraction. Actually, some CK stuff. Not after you said that, I was thinking about it a bit more. There's some teams that are really doing really interesting stuff, some researchers. And that that's it. So where do you guys normally go to consume your content? Like other than the research that you have to do for your work, do you read blogs, uh, any 
people that you follow on Twitter, uh, podcasts, where would be a good place for people to go and learn more after they've been enlightened on this podcast and they're craving more content? For me, it's a little, this is knowing answer because it's hard to replicate, but I have a group of founder friends that I talk to a lot that give me so much insight. It's invaluable. And other than that, it's honestly mostly Twitter. If there's an interesting blog post or interesting research, it's often ends up on my feed. So I, I don't need much more. Yeah, Tim, I think it's, yeah, it's such an answer like giving founders and trying to understand their product. Not always accessible to everyone in the space, but yeah, I mean, like the wild interviews podcast is, is a good one. Get them off on. I think, yeah, generally, like I, I try to stay off Twitter in most cases. I think it, it's almost like a mini bull market of narratives, right? Every day on Twitter, there's something new being pushed as like the next XYZ. And I think in the early days, we paid more attention to that, like the micro changes, but the macro sort of changes are what we're focused on now more. And so I think just generally speaking, just trying to stay plugged in with like early stage projects and founders are building cool things and seeing how we can maybe help with SATA to help them achieve their goals. And it's usually what we do. So I guess actually, if you want to stay up to date, follow Jasper and I on Twitter, because we're usually posting our hot takes when we develop them. If you want to get up to date or join our Discord. I will most certainly be sharing links to both, only because you gave the podcast a bit of a plug. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. It is called the wild user interviews, mostly to open source conversations and some people spill more alpha than others, but there's certainly a lot of value in more people having access to people, both of you. So thank you. We really appreciate all that alpha. A pleasure to chat with you. And, and we really appreciate you taking us on the podcast. And it, it did sound like a goodbye, but we, we don't have to wrap it up. We can... I, I need to run actually. So it's perfect. Oh, there you go. The perfect timing then. <laughs> well, guys, thanks so much for joining. Yeah. The last thing that I wanted to ask, if you want to give like a 30 second plug, Testnet just went live. Any call to actions to people, what they can do, any timelines for the next phases? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Looking for the next Testnet launch, which will onboard like external validators sometime in January. So that's that's exciting. That's like a next milestone. Looking to launch mainnet in somewhere later in Q1, 2024. Find us at seta.xyc. Go to our Discord, get involved. If you have any ideas for cool application that you can build on top of this, reach out to us. We can connect you with other people building similar stuff or yeah, help you make that come true. Yeah, I think it's the main call to action. Beautiful. Thanks so much for your time. I will most certainly be reading more and learning more. I may make an appearance in your Discord or somebody impersonating me for sure. And <laughs> we'll give in touch. Sounds great. Thank you very much. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.